by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we will be discussing how uh, Western sanctions against uh, Russia will uh, could likely produce a global food disaster. Also going to be talking about the upcoming elections in Colombia and what that's going to mean both internally and externally for the country. Also going to be touching on the U.S.-Africa Command expanding its presence in Zambia and other issues facing the African continent. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, in light of the recent mass shootings, the National Rifle Association has decided to go right ahead with its annual conference scheduled for Friday. But in a twist that might seem ironic, or at least it's definitely hypocritical, guns are banned from the event, at least during Trump's speech Friday night. But it's not the NRA's fault, it's the Secret Service's fault. Apparently, they're taking control of the hall during Donald Trump's speech and are prohibiting attendees from having firearms. Firearms, accessories, and knives. None of that. Ammunition, laser pointers, pepper spray, toy guns, backpacks, other items, none of that. Can't take none of that in while Donald Trump is speaking at the NRA convention. Now, to be fair, they did the same thing in 2018 when then-Vice President Mike Pence spoke at that year's convention. But it's still a little hypocritical that you can't carry your rootin' tootin' shootin' rifle into the National Rifle Association National Conference. And there's lots of pressure on speakers and performers to back out in light of the recent gun violence. Singer-songwriter Don McLean has withdrawn from performing at the NRA uh, conference after the 19 children and two teachers were killed at a Texas elementary school on Tuesday. He said, quote, in light of the recent events in Texas, I've decided it would be disrespectful and hurtful for me to perform for the NRA at their convention in Houston this week. I'm sure all the folks planning to attend this event are shocked and sickened by these events as well. After all, we are all Americans. I share the sorrow for this terrible, cruel, loss with the rest of the nation, end quote. Yeah, I don't think most people who are attending that conference, if they're still going to go, are all that sickened and sorrowful about it. A bunch of elected officials are scheduled to speak as well, such as U.S. Senator Ted Cruz, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, and Governor Greg Abbott. But they're all mum on whether they're actually going to show up because what do you say at an NRA convention days after two horrific mass shootings literally happening days apart? Do they each literally get up there and give different variations of thoughts and prayers? Because those politicians aren't giving anything substantive in the way of addressing the root causes of this issue or in the way of any agreement to any new gun legislation. So, so what do they say? And then there's also pressure on the mayor of Houston, Sylvester Turner, to not host the conference. But Mayor Turner says that they simply must hold the conference because, quote, the convention has been on the books for more than two years. It's a contractual arrangement. We simply cannot cancel a conference or convention because we do not agree with the subject matter. 
You know, I really feel like if there were ever a time to stand on principle and break a contract and face the consequences, now would be that time. But it seems that few people are willing to stand for the victims of gun violence, which is another reason why it will just keep happening. And that is particularly stinging today as we learn that police officers seem to have refused to respond to onlookers who were urging them to go into the Texas elementary school where the gunmen killed those 19 children and two teachers. Witness accounts are emerging as the investigation into the horrific mass shooting is ongoing as the 40 minutes of terror that are being documented seems to have ended when the 18-year-old shooter was killed by a Border Patrol team. Juan Carranza recounted that a woman shouted to the cops to go in there, go in there, soon after the attack began. Carranza saw the scene unfold from outside his house, which is across the street from Robb Elementary School in Uvalde. Carranza said the officers did not go in as the woman urged them to. Then Javier Cazares, whose fourth grade daughter Jacqueline Cazares was killed in the attack, said he raced to the school when he heard about the shooting, arriving while police were still gathered outside the building. Angry that the police were not moving in, he said he told bystanders, let's just rush in because the cops aren't doing anything like they're supposed to. He said more could have been done. They were unprepared. Department of Public Safety Director Steve McCross said, quote, the bottom line is law enforcement was there. They did engage immediately. They did contain Ramos, the shooter, in the classroom, end quote, right, where he was pretty much free to murder 21 people. It seems the good guys with the guns the NRA is always talking about waited outside. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Joan Ross, a senior fellow at the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at the Renmin University of China and author of the book China's Great Road, Lessons from Marxist Theory and Socialist Practices. Mr. Ross, thanks so much for joining us. Very pleased to be back. Well, the pleasure is all ours, Mr. Ross. And of course, as the war in Ukraine not only continues, but at this point seems set to uh, intensify if Washington gets its way, um, it seems that we're already feeling uh, the ripple effects really the world over from this war in a number of ways. Now, in the United States, when it comes to issues of inflation and uh, uh, rising gas prices and sort of rising prices on a number of things in general, uh, President Joe Biden tells us that it's, you know, due to, quote, 
Putin's price hike, sort of placing the blame on uh, the Russian government for it. And one of the uh, uh, issues that has certainly been exacerbated because of this is uh, the issue of uh, global hunger and the issue of, of food access for really countless people around the globe. And I feel like um, we've been hearing uh, about just this issue from a, a number of areas. Uh, you published a piece about this uh, with People's Dispatch entitled The U.S. Unilateral Sanctions Against Russia Will Produce a Global Food Disaster. And for instance, we see statements from people like Antonio Gutierrez, Secretary General of the United Nations, who said, quote, there really is no true solution to the problem of global food security without bringing back the agricultural production of Ukraine and the food and fertilizer production of Russia and Belarus into world uh, markets despite the war. And I feel like we've also seen, you know, the, the G7 countries, namely the U.S., the U.K., Italy, Japan, France, Germany and Canada, um, saying that uh, the biggest threat to world food security is cutting off food exports from Ukraine and, and things like this. And so I was hoping you could sort of break down, uh, Mr. Ross, what's really at work here and how these uh, uh, U.S. sanctions toward Russia are literally threatening uh, a, a lot of people's ability to be able to eat. Well, what what you said, what Biden says, is there's two statements which are totally false or lies, to put it bluntly. Right. The first, it is not true that it's the war in Ukraine which has caused the inflation in the United States. It's United States uh, government policy. That's very easy to show. In in uh, January 2020, uh, the U.S. inflation was 2.5%. By January 2022, that is before the war started, it was 7.5%. So it went up by 5% long before the war started. And on the latest data, it's only 8.3%. Only, I mean, compared to the 7.5%. Uh, 8.3%, that's 0.8%. So most of the inflation... Um, was created a long time before the Ukraine war. I, I, I rarely agree with the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal, but they put it quite rightly that this war was, the, this inflation is made in Washington. It's not made by Putin. So that's the first big lie. That's to attempt to blame Russia for something which is actually caused by US policy. And secondly, the what is not a lie, um, is a reality which he's attempting to distort is the food situation is now very, very serious. Uh, you have tremendous food increases, which is uh, which are taking place. Price of wheat, for example, has got up more more than sixty uh, percent. About eight hundred million people in the world are already suffering from chronic few food insecurity. That's about ten percent of the world's population, and that's going to it's going to affect about at least ten million more people. So the food problem is extremely serious, but it's not caused by Ukraine. It's caused by the Russian sanctions, uh, by the U.S. sanctions against Russia. Again, it's very easy to show this. Firstly, Russia is a much bigger wheat exporter, which is the key crop, than Ukraine. Uh, Russia exports about 18% of the world's exports of wheat compared to uh, the Ukraine, which is 7%. So firstly, it's a big lie even on wheat. But anyway, wheat is not the most serious problem. It, it is a very serious problem. I don't underestimate it, but there's an even more serious one, which is the block, the sanctions stopping the support, uh, the supply of fertilizers. 
Russia is the world's largest supplier of fertilizer. And whereas wheat is a very, very important crop, fertilizers um, affect everything. And indeed, it has a global effect because one of, well, for obviously for consumers, the increases in food prices would be a bad thing. For for local farmers, they could be a good thing. But in this case, they can't even take advantage of it and compensate for local production for for global production, or there's problems in that anyway because of time. You can't put something in the ground and it grows tomorrow. But um, they can't even do that because the fertilizer won't allow them to grow enough crops. And so, therefore, there's no possibility to replace the su supply. So, the most important thing to do to deal with the food crisis is to lift the sanctions against Russia. Russia's made what seems a perfectly reasonable proposal, which seems that if the if the sanctions are should be simultaneously, it will arrange safe corridors for the export of Ukrainian wheat and the sanctions against Russia should be lifted. That seems very reasonable to me. Um, but the unilateral sanctions of the US against Russia are the biggest cause of the food crisis in the world by far. Just any look at the statistics shows it. Yeah, and, you know, it is the effect of uh, the U.S. sanctions that people are feeling at the gas pump in the grocery stores. And, you know, not just in regard to uh, the the threat of hunger and famine in parts of the global south that uh, that are being impacted by that, which is horrible, but also in the global north, because, of course, that's where uh, most Western uh, uh, media focuses its attention. They don't pay a lot of attention attention to, you know, people going hungry in the global south. But when people in the global north uh, who are not threatened by famine are complaining about high gas prices and the high price of food and, and a reduction in average weekly earnings um, that, you know, people are making less money and they can't afford to feed their families uh, like they were able to before the U.S. Uh, and the EU and NATO began this proxy war in Ukraine and imposed all these sanctions. This is a different problem, I think, for the United States. And I'm wondering how you see uh, the blowback from the effect of these sanctions in the global north affecting U.S. policy uh, toward this, this whole uh, proxy war going forward. Well, it depends, obviously, what will the effect will be, whether the population is realises the real situation, which, of course, the United States government is doing everything possible to conceal. But again, let's, let's take it in two stages. Actually, the attack on US living standards started even before the war started. If you take from March 2021 to March 2022, when the war was only, only just getting, had only just started, real wages in the US after inflation fell by 3.4% already. And th this is fundamentally due to the US government's um, policies, which it launched a, it's, it's trying to do too much. On the one hand, it's trying to have a big military budget. On the other hand, it's trying to give out um, inadequate, but some money to people to compensate for COVID. And the US can't afford to do this. It need, The only way it can deal with the situation properly without the population being damaged would be to cut its military expenditure. But of course, it refuses to cut it, cut its um, military expenditure. Then secondly, yes, it, it, this, the population is bit of the world, including the population of the global north, is being asked to pay for the proxy war, which the United States wanted in uh, Ukraine. I mean, this is very obvious. I mean, 
there's $40 billion being voted for military, to even come to the most you know, elementary. $40 billion new military aid has been given to Ukraine. That $40 billion would solve a whole lot of problems in the, in the United States. And even that's not the limit. I, I can't, there are so many ways that the US is trying to transfer resources to the Ukraine. Uh, I can't keep up with them all. The last calculation I did was it was 53 billion in total. But it, that may underestimate it. I've seen some estimates in the newspapers of 60 billion, but I can't, haven't been able to find that, all of the details of that. So you've got a situation whereby you have sanctions which are making uh, food prices go up, uh, which will make the, the oil price go up. And you're having big transfer of resources to Ukraine for military expenditure, which could have been used in the US. What the US government is doing is asking the population of the United States uh, to pay for its the war which it started, because there's no doubt that the United, it's, it's a proxy war by the United States. It knew it was intolerable to Russia's interests to try to attempt to bring Ukraine into into NATO, which is what the United States wanted. And also, incidentally, it's not only the population of the United States, it's also the population of Europe. And that may get even worse than the United States because the United States is not a big importer of uh, energy from Russia, whereas um, Europe is. So, yeah, so what you've got here is a war which was launched by the United States or provoked by the United States, de facto launched by the United States, and uh, which is now asking for the population of the global north to pay for and for the global situation in the global south, to put it. So the logical thing from the population of the global north to do, as of the global south, is lift the sanctions, Stop the stop the military aid. Uh, come to what is the only reasonable policy in Ukraine, which is that Ukraine should be a neutral country, and you you guarantee the rights of the people in East Ukraine. But of course, these are this is truth, and this is in the interest of the population of the global north. But the United States is doing everything possible to conceal this, although there are some cracks appearing. The New York Times had an editorial um, about a week ago saying for the first time, Ukraine can't win the war. It's going to have to make uh, um, a deal with Russia. Uh, Kissinger created a whole load of, not somebody, again, I normally quote, but created a great fuss at Davos by saying that uh, Ukraine could gain the same thing. Ukraine can't, bring the, can't win the war and the war's got brought to an end. But of course, the US government has got a whole load of lying going on about the situation. It's also lying about the situation of war because it's becoming quite clear. It's been claiming that the Kiev government is winning, but it's becoming quite clear that actually Russia in eastern Ukraine is winning. So it's lying all down the line in order to conceal the reality that the, it's trying to force the US population to pay for this war and the European population. Definitely. And when you talk about these cracks that are starting to show in um, Washington's uh, uh, narrative around the Ukraine war, Mr. Ross, it, it really it makes me feel like this whole issue about how they're framing the global food crisis in, in what is obviously an attempt, like we've been saying, to obscure the reality of what's really happening. 
Um, it, it feels like it, it's just part of this whole broader uh, propaganda aspect, this information war aspect, really, that we're in. And even, you know, CIA director uh, William Burns uh, has <clears throat> admitted publicly that um, we are, in fact, not we, that the U.S. government is, in fact, in an information war um, with Russia. But And like you say, one of the persistent narratives of uh, this war is that, you know, Russia is really taking a drubbing from a military standpoint and, you know, they're 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 on the ropes and therefore the U.S. and the West has to continue to funnel, you know, billions of dollars and money and weapons and support uh, to, I suppose, strike the final blow. But, you know, I was just looking at um, uh, a piece in The Guardian that noted that uh, a senior Ukrainian official, General Oleksiy Gromov, said at, at a briefing, quote, Russia has the advantage, but we are doing everything we can. And so even within uh, the Ukrainian state, it's being acknowledged about uh, how uh, Russia, uh, from a military standpoint, it is really gaining ground. And uh, the real the tragedy of this, I think, is that, you know, the, the deeply propagandized people of the U.S., I think at this point, still don't quite grasp how they're being negatively impacted by the U.S.'s role in Ukraine, which they've been told that they should support. You know what I mean? And so it's this strange sort of thing where um, I think the American people are uh, aware of their worsening conditions, but aren't yet clear on how it's directly connected to um, the machinations of imperialism. You know what I mean? But like you say, as these cracks start to show, it it's, it's unclear at this point how things will continue to unfold as the reality of what the U.S. is trying to do becomes more and more clear yeah no but i mean i've you know i've lived through a lot of u.s wars i'm old enough to have i actually became involved in politics through opposition to the vietnam war um and it's the same pattern when the war is launched there's a great frenzy of uh, uh, so-called patriotism which isn't actually patriotism it's because they've been told a load of lies uh, and then as the reality of the war becomes clear then the population becomes more and more against it. So the race for the U.S. Um, government is to try to get is to try to conceal the lies for long enough, and bef- uh, for the pop- for it to win the war before the population uh, revolts against it. That now this in some cases can take a long time. I I would say opposition to the Vietnam War starts serious opposition started about 1964. And it took four years in that case to get majority opinion against it, against the war. And then it took seven years to get the U.S. out. That took a long time. The Iraq war uh, was popular at the beginning and now is universally regarded as a disaster. That that occurred much more quickly. It probably only took two or three years for the American population to understand that it was a disaster, although it took longer again. Well, the U.S. is not actually fully out of Iraq. In this case, it's the normal pattern. You pump out a load of lies uh, about the military situation because, of course, if, if they were told the truth, which is that Ukraine's losing, um, well, they'd think, well, why should we put Good, the U.S. population, then why should we put good money after bad? So we're here in a race be, between the lies which are being put out by the U.S. government and the uh, and the population realizing the truth. In the, in this case, the war's only been going on for three months, so I wouldn't have expected the situation to turn around, and therefore I wouldn't want to exaggerate the cracks which appear in. But there are significant cracks. There's another thing, of course, which is 
existing, of course, which is that the economic situation in the United States is um, seriously deteriorating. The you know the economy already contracted in the first quarter of the year. Um, we don't know if we're going to have a recession, but certainly the economy is going to slow down a lot, and therefore there's going to be a great deal of popular dissatisfaction in the United States. It's true that the population doesn't understand that one of the key ways out of this is to put a stop to the US supporting the war, but that's what we have to do. We just have to explain the truth. If the war goes on long enough, the truth will come out. Hopefully, by that time, of course, tens or possibly tens of thousands of people will die. So I hope the truth comes out quickly. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, as we're, you know, ramping up for uh, continuing to tell the truth, the rest of the world is responding to uh, this uh, effect on the food supply. I mean, how do you see uh, the responses from other countries, particularly particularly in the global south, uh, being able to, you know, feed their people uh, in making deals among themselves uh, in this growing crisis? Well, this, it's already clear that the Global South won't go along with the US over the question of war, even before the food crisis became so clear. Um, the number of countries that supported the sanctions against Russia was really reduced to the United States and its closest allies. On the calculations of the way that countries voted in the UN, only six countries representing only 16% of the world's population supported the US sanctions against Russia, and countries representing 84% of the world's population uh, opposed it. But of course, you know, the US doesn't think that, you know, black and brown people living in third world countries or on the global south count. So therefore it presents as world public opinion is united around itself, whereas um, in fact, of course, it's not. And they weren't prepared to go along with these sanctions anyway. And now that the the situation is uh, coming clear and the food situation particularly is getting worse, we're facing a disaster. The quote you started off with from the head of the UN is quite right. You can't solve the problem without getting both Ukraine and Russia back into the world food supply. They're even less going to um, support this. Uh, the problem is that the United States, of course, is threatening sanctions, not merely against Russia, but it's threatening sanctions against those countries which refuse to go along with its sanctions. So, therefore, this is turning really into a global fight around the world food supply. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Mr. Ross, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the upcoming elections in Colombia and what that could mean for both the country and the region. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by James Patrick Jordan, a national co-coordinator for the Alliance for Global Justice. James, thanks so much for joining us. Always glad to. I love by any means necessary. Great program. 
Well, we really appreciate that, James, and I'm glad we could have you on today because this weekend on May 29th, over 38 million Cubans, excuse me, over 38 million Colombians will be uh, going to take part in the election for the country's next president and vice president uh, for the four-year term, of course, between 2022 and uh, 2026. And uh, there's been a lot of excitement and a lot of attention being paid to this upcoming election um, because of the left-wing ticket of Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez, a black woman who's a longtime activists in Colombia and what a possible victory for them could mean for the country, of course, uh, uh, after a right-wing government that's uh, been supported by the U.S. And we've even seen uh, uh, recent uh, images showing a possible threat to the life of uh, Francia Marquez and what feels like a kind of a dangerous time uh, in Colombian politics. And so, uh, James, I was hoping you could help us understand basically what What's at stake with this um, Colombian election that's coming up in a, a couple of days? Who are the players involved and just what are uh, uh, the most important dynamics to understand here? Well, these elections, excuse me, these elections are going to be uh, huge, uh, hugely important historic elections no matter the outcome. It looks very likely that the Petro Marquez ticket will win, uh, get the most votes in the first round, and many of their supporters are very hopeful that they could actually win the presidency in the first round. Uh, if they don't, that goes to uh, June 19th, the second round. But uh, will that happen or will that not? It's hard to say because this is after Colombia or after all Colombia. Colombia has a history of fraud and they have a history of a brutal electoral season violence, including the assassinations of presidential candidates. And this is the first time since 1948 that a center left candidate has commanded such a lead. And then, of course, in 1948, that candidate. Um, Gaitan, Jorge Eliezer, Eliezer Gaitan was assassinated before he could be elected. So, I mean, these are the things we're watching out for. It looks very positive for the center left, but it's Colombia and there's all kinds of dirty tricks and there's all kinds of possibilities for violence. And that's why we're down here. We have an international delegation of people from the U.S., uh, Denmark, Mexico, uh, Germany, Canada, and uh, of course, Colombia that are here observing the elections, accompanying uh, threatened social activists during this time, and uh, just trying to be there to see what's going on, be able to alert the rest of you know our country and the rest of the world to the extent possible about anything we need to be aware of. If there's any need for actions of solidarity, we're here. And in fact, we're going to be maintaining a uh, transmission of up-to-the-date um, news and also interviews uh, throughout the day on Sunday. Um, people can go to the Alliance for Global Justice Facebook page or YouTube channel and, and uh, access that. 
Okay. Yeah, uh, I'm really grateful that you're providing that uh, outlet for people to have access up to the minute uh, uh, as the uh, results come in. Because, you know, as you said, this is Colombia, and there have been not just threats of violence, there have been acts of violence committed against uh, the historic pact uh, members, Petro and Marquez, including uh, another attempt on Francia Marquez's life on the night of May 20. First, I mean, so I, 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 I think, of course, that we have to keep in context that it is not in the interest of certainly the right wing in Colombia that the historic pact win, but it's also not in the interest of the United States if a left a left wing government comes to power in Colombia. So can you make the connections between this violence against uh, the historic pact members, uh, the right wing government of Colombia and the, the U.S. government, which supports the right wing government in Colombia? Well, the connections are extensive. Uh, Colombia largely exists to a very large extent. It could be very, you know, correctly called a military colony of the Pentagon of the United States. I mean, we have we talk about the number of U.S. bases in Colombia, but the truth is the U.S. military has access to every aspect of the Colombian military. Colombian leaders, Colombian military regularly meet with the political and military leaders of Colombia. I mean, it's it's very subservient to to the Pentagon, to the you know the the empire. Now, with regards to the U.S. support of the right wing, I mean, how far does do we go back? In the 1950s, Colombia sent a brigade to Korea that learned tactics and came back and used napalm against its own people. In 1962, the U.S. urged the Colombian government to use, and they they said these words, use terror and organize paramilitaries against uh, autonomous peasant regions in Colombia. And of course, there's famously the Colombia or the U.S. funded the Colombian military and security apparatus to the tune of more than $12 billion through Pantland, Colombia. And since then, in the midst of some of the worst political violence and worst police brutality that Colombia has seen in recent years, especially in the strikes between 19 and 2020, both the Trump administrations and the Biden, I mean, uh, strikes of 2019 and 2021, both the Biden administration and the Trump administration raised aid, military aid and police aid to Colombia. So the U.S. has a strong interest in maintaining the strategic partnership with Colombia because it threatens popular movements and popular governments throughout the world. It is clearly like a, you know another branch of the U.S. military. It's interesting, though, the U.S. would certainly rather see either of the other candidates win over Petro, the other candidates being Fico Gutierrez, the far-right candidate, and the center-right candidate, Sergio Fajardo. Certainly, they'd rather see them uh, win. But it's also interesting that they have already called, they called Francia Marcus to come and meet with them at the State Department, you know, because they know that they may have, you know, that 
that center-left may well win this election. So I think that for us in the United States, especially if uh, Petro and Marcus win, we have to be very vigilant to two things. One is the U.S. to try to interfere in the internal affairs by supporting other candidates in the future, building right-wing parties, that sort of thing. But the other thing is that I think that the government will be working overtime, the U.S. government, to try its best to co-opt a new center-left government. So we really need to defend a center-left government against both the direct interference and the attempts to disrupt Colombia. You know, the affairs of, of Colombia directly, or to influence and try to co-opt and manipulate the Petro Marcus government, because it's going to be very hard. I mean, uh, to <laughs> to just get elected and gain any kind of independence from the stranglehold the U.S. has on Colombia. But this is an important step, and it's important to realize that these elections are more a result of the movements in the streets than they are the results of the machinations of any politicians, right or left. And that's what I think people need to understand about Colombia, is that the real power right now is in the popular movements in the streets. And it's only because of the uprisings of popular movements that uh, Petro and Marcus have gotten as far as they've gotten. You know, someone you could say more um, about that, James, in terms of the people's movements. And I think that's particularly significant <clears throat> in a country like Colombia that has such a reputation for uh, uh, suppression and violence and, and frankly, uh, a murderous reputation for, you know, uh, activists and uh, human rights defenders and labor leaders and things like this. And um, honestly, how that reflects on the government of uh, Ivan Duque, uh, who, of course, has the support of Washington. And so it seems like this uh, uh, social movement aspect is a big part of the driving force here that seems to seriously be pushing back both in the streets and uh, perhaps at the polls, as may be the case uh, as uh, you know, we move closer to this uh, election in Colombia. Yeah, the, the movement in the streets, I, I was here um, at the very beginning of the national strike in 2019 that saw mil literally millions of people around the country taking to the streets. And uh, it these were the largest such demonstrations in the country since the 1970s. And then there was the better-known national strike of 2021 that had even larger participation. And we saw a lot about the brutality of the police and the military against the demonstrations. But what's really most striking about both of these you know, events, both, both of these strikes, <laughs> most striking about the strikes, is that um, even with the right wing firmly in power, they were defeated in so many of their austerity measures. Now, if the right wing does, or, you know, if Fajardo or if Vico Gutierrez win, um, if they win, I mean, it's, it's not going to be because they got the legitimate votes. It's going to clearly because of threats and intimidation and fraud. There's nobody that could imagine them winning otherwise. But if they win, uh, it will just be a continuation of the violence with state, state, state sanctions. The so violence will continue 
under Petro, too, because I think the right wing is not going to take this lying down. But in 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 this case, they will have to wait the government against them, hopefully. And the, the popular movements, again, they're just huge. I just think people are sick of the assassinations and of the lack of respect for the peace accords and of the displacement. I just really think the Colombian people are fed up. And um, I don't think they're going to give up no matter who wins. That's encouraging, definitely. And in the the event that the historic pact does win in the first round or the second, you know, there are uh, the stakes are pretty high because Petro has vowed to build a government that prioritizes life, environment and productive development in the country, uh, you know, putting forth some policies that sound kind of socialistic, right? And, uh, you know, Francia has pledged to work uh, in favor of historically dispossessed and neglected uh, people in Columbia, Colombia, indigenous and Afro-Colombians, considering the opposition that they are up against now, you know, they they have a one-year term to to do some of these things before another election. I mean, how do you see any of these policies coming to fruition? Well, once again, I don't think we can uh, underestimate the power of the people in the streets. I think it's going to be hard. I mean, there's no no doubt. I mean, the U.S. military and empire is in every aspect of Colombian society. The the uh, ten, you know the tentacles of this giant beast are to be found everywhere. So extricating this beast from Colombia and winning, they they often speak about how we're fighting for a second independence and getting that second independence is not going to be easy. This is a long-term struggle, and everybody needs to understand that. However, Petro and Francia, Marcus, if they stay with the people, they are going to be backed by the people. And I think right now we are seeing that this huge um, coalition that reaches across all aspects and sectors of Colombian society is angry, and they... Really, from what I can see right now, they are the ones that hold the power, and they will be the ones that tip the balance in favor of that second independence. It's a long-haul struggle. It won't be easy, but this will be a huge step forward if the, if, uh, the center-left wins. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, James, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the 
U.S. Africa command expanding its presence in Zambia and other issues facing the African continent. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Jeremy Kuzmarov, managing editor of Covert Action magazine, the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including The Russians Are Coming Again with John Marciano and Obama's Unending Wars. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And Jeremy, here recently, uh, the U.S. Africa Command announced that it will be opening an office of security operation at the U.S. Embassy inside Zambia. Now, uh, according to AFRICOM, this new office is supposed to enhance the uh, military to military relations between the Zambian forces and AFRICOM and to, quote, expand areas of cooperation, enforce management, management, modernization and professional military education for the Zambian security forces. Um, uh, since 2014, uh, uh, the U.S. government has already uh, put more than eight million dollars in assistance for some of these uh, uh, Zambian battalions uh, that were deployed to a U.N. peacekeeping mission in the Central African Republic. And so, you know, Jeremy, uh, Zambia is not a country that I feel we hear a lot about here in the United States. And uh, I'm definitely curious why the U.S. is uh, so interested in Zambia. I mean, I'm certain it has something to do with Washington's overall uh, uh, interest on the African continent. And you recently published a piece about this on Covert Action magazine entitled The Sun Never Since. Why is AFRICOM expanding in Zambia? So from your perspective, Jeremy, I mean, uh, what's really happening here? Well, I think it's about the copper. Uh, uh, Goldman Sachs had a report, copper is the new oil, uh, because of the uh, you know clean energy revolution. And, you know, copper is needed in electric vehicles, uh, as well as, I think, you know, many electronics. So there's increasing demand for copper. And I think the eyes are wide, you know, capitalists, that they could make a huge fortune off Zambia, which has copper mining. That's their major, uh, you know, they're one of the largest copper producers in the world, besides Chile. Uh, so is it a coincidence that we see AFRICOM expanding at this time? And, you know, they just elected a new president, uh, Hachilema, who basically is promoting a neoliberal economic uh, plot, uh, you know, program where he's encouraging you know, foreign companies to come in and take control of the copper. The you know, previous uh, leader, uh, Lungu, had you know, promoted some measures to nationalize it and tax foreign companies in the copper sector more than Hachilema who had, you know, heavy supporting from foreign interests, foreign countries, including the United States. So, you know, AFRICOM is basically there to secure the copper for foreign interests and, you know, ensure that the prices are low, kept low, that the tax levels are kept low, and that's not going to benefit the Zambian people. You know, it's their resource, but, uh, they, you know, they're not going to see any economic benefits from it. Uh, and from this, you know, boom in uh, the clean energy economy, and, you know, Zambia has tremendous poverty levels, uh, and that's just going to persist, even even when companies are making a huge fortune. And one has to mention the uh, Chinese, because the Chinese have been quite active in Zambia for many years in the mining sector. So I think AFRICOM is designed to counter the Chinese, but the Chinese are less militaristic. They kind of go on and do their business, but they don't meddle the political affairs, and they don't you know, militarized countries. Uh, unfortunately, the U.S. approach is to promote militarization. And, you know, for, from an Afri uh, previous Zambian leaders has rejected AFRICOM, 
because they saw it like neo-colonialism, and they were trying to develop. They were part of an effort by South Africa and the Sardic region to develop their own security apparatus and own security forces coming from that region instead of having foreigners come in for security and policing who have outside agendas. And unfortunately, Hachi Lama has sold out his country's interests in this important initiative for local security. Yeah, and the this demand for uh, reparations from uh, uh, Zambia uh, to the Congo uh, of really to the tune of $11 billion. So this $325 million really is nowhere near close to what Congo, uh, uh, the Congo was demanding, goes all the way back to conflicts in 1996 uh, involving Uganda, Rwanda, uh, and uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. So can you explain a little bit what that conflict has to do with this reparations demand that was truly uh, uh, insultingly shortchanged by the U.S.? Sure, yeah. And Congo is one of the richest countries, you know, as far as mineral wealth. And, you know, here in the United States, we take for granted that we can have cheap electronics, you know, and the shift to, you know, uh, clean energy vehicles. But, uh, you know, hopefully they'll become more affordable. But, uh, I mean, the minerals come from countries like Zambia with copper. And Congo is rich in numerous minerals, cobalt, copper, and uranium, uh, tremendous mining sector. And foreign interests have been gobbling it up for, for decades. And in the 90s, I think the U.S., developed a clever strategy of relying on the Rwandans and Ugandans. So they armed them quite heavily and supported their invasion of Congo to ensure a pliable leader. His name was uh, Hippolyte Kanembe, who went by the pseudonym Joseph Kabila, and he enabled Western corporate plunder of that country, and they committed massive atrocities, those armies, which were partially subsidized by the United States and the United Kingdom. And now the World Court has judged that they have to pay reparations yeah, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Although, as you point out, that still falls short uh, for all the resources that they looted and all the suffering that they made large-scale war crimes, including rapes and killings. Uh, so, you know, there's no dollar value you can place all the lives destroyed. But uh, at least there's some effort to compensate the people of those Congolese provinces who are brutalized. But there's never been any effort to hold you know, U.S. officials like in the Clinton administration and Bush administration accountable for supporting uh, those uh, forces that invaded and plundered Congo. Yeah, and, you know, you, you mentioned in your piece about Zambia, Jeremy, about how the founder of AFRICOM, the U.S. Africa Command, uh, Vice Admiral Robert Moeller, um, admitted that uh, one of the main reasons why the command even exists was, quote, protecting the free flow of natural resources from Africa to the global market. And so, I mean, it seems that uh, uh, from the beginning, and I think this is pretty typical of U.S. foreign policy, is that they set up these different commands, whether it's AFRICOM or SOUTHCOM or CENTCOM or what have you, all these different commands for different uh, global theaters is uh, sort of it's portrayed as, you know, uh, a defensive 
collective sort of measure or as a kind of partnership with different governments in different regions around the world that is ultimately to their benefit. But in reality, it seems that there's always sort of this um, underlying uh, uh, dynamic of the, the U.S. really just trying to maintain control of uh, uh, the world's uh, people's land and resources really through the, the military imposition of these different commands and the country's 800 some odd uh, basis and military installations. You know what I mean? And of course, you, you know, mentioned uh, uh, the um, sort of contradiction, if you will, uh, with uh, China that the U.S. has and in a number of levels, I think, trying to counter uh, China's presence on the African continent, which I think they're finding uh, perhaps somewhat difficult, given, as you noted, Jeremy, the sort of fundamentally um, different character of uh, China's relationship to a lot of these different countries for whatever issues they may have. But uh, even still, when we continue to see how this is unfolding as it pertains to AFRICOM, it it just really feels like uh, uh, a means of protecting Washington's ability to basically loot uh, that that uh, continent really to the devastation of the people uh, of these different countries. But I think that Washington's attitude is that, uh, you know, their suffering is worth it if it means that the U.S. can, you know, uh, uh, maintain its place in terms of influence and access to the resources of the African continent. Yeah, I, I think you, you put it very well. Uh, and, you know, uh, looking into it, you know, one of the companies, uh, they're Wall Street firms that own a lot of these mining companies or have major investments. So they're, you know, making huge profits off these resources. And if you travel there, yeah, you can see the destitute poverty and horrible environmental costs of the mining of these companies. They take very few measures to protect the local environment and waterway. So it's really disheartening. Uh, and, yeah, it's really a, a new form of colonialism. It's kind of like the recolonization of the African continent. You know, there's a long history of, of European and whites going in there and losing their resources and taking advantage, you know, exploiting the, the continent. And, you know, many Africans see AFRICOM in that way as just a, a neo-colonial instrument. And as you point out, yeah, China has a more mixed legacy because, you know, China has its own history of colonization with the British. And, you know, the Maoist revolution they overcame years, you know, and the legacy of British colonization. And, I mean, they invested more in the infrastructure. Like in Zambia, the Chinese had built the Tanzan Railroad during the Cold War years, a railroad from uh, Zambia to Tanzania. They invested a lot you know, in sports. You know, now, I mean, they, they get a lot from the mining, and their, their record on labor is pretty bad, yeah, because I spent some time in Zambia. And there were riots against the Chinese for good reason. I mean, they, they were bringing a lot of their own workers, and they were paying the African miners very low wage. So there was exploitation. But uh, they did invest a lot in the country's infrastructure. They built nice athletic facilities that were open for everybody. Uh, so they were reinvesting something back to improve the quality of life, whereas we do see, you know, in the case of the United States, a lot of just militarization they're often promoting structural adjustment programs to the IMF that push for the uh, cutting back on social services, you know, to pay back debt. And that, that has a terrible effect, like on public schools. And, you know, they're, they're stripping money away from social services, including schooling and health care, and they have to rely on foreign charities. So, you know, the, the impact of the United States, unfortunately, is, is quite negative. 
just like you know European colonization. When I was there, they said you know the British had just kind of looted us. They barely invest in any education, any, any constructive programs for all the money they were taking out. And again, China at least does invest something, and there's a much more mixed attitude toward the Chinese in you know across Africa because of that. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's a part of this, uh, Jeremy, that has to be asked. Why uh, is Uganda paying reparations, but the U.S. and uh, European nations that have looted the Congo using Uganda as their proxy, why aren't they paying reparations? Now, unfortunately, it's an issue of power. They they have so much power, and that, that's, you know, they've kind of rendered these institutions, you know, illegitimate in the eyes of many people around the world because uh, the rich and powerful countries and leaders just get away with their crimes. Uh, and they make like, you know, only Africans do bad things to each other. You know, like the International Criminal Court, most of the people they were trying for a while were African leaders or, you know, some leader that the U.S. had tried to overthrow, like Milosevic. Uh, so it undermined the credibility when there's not a uniform standard of justice and the leaders are powerful and wealthy countries are not held to account for their crimes. And in this case, the crimes are horrific. Uh, and, you know, the U.S. was supporting a uh, Uganda leader, Museveni, has been in power since 1986. And he's been compared to Idi Amin. He's, compared, he's killed a lot of his rivals uh, and, you know, was committing horrific atrocities along with the Rwandan leader, Paul Kagame. And these are some of the worst leaders and you know, biggest killers in the world. And the U.S. was pumping you know, a huge amount of money and weaponry and you know, been good friends of this leader, so these two leaders. So what kind of foreign policy is that? Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Jeremy, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, May 26, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about. <coughs> wow. <coughs> your concerns about my coughing. <coughs> um, uh, give us a call <laughs> around that time, man. Boy, that threw me all off my rhythm. I don't know. Uh, Jackie, tell them the, the ways they can get in touch with this. <laughs> You know where we are, all y'all, all you allies, accomplices, and comrades who are probably very concerned about us, but we're all right. I promise. <laughs> you can reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320 at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time today. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.mave, M-A-V-E. 
e.digital. And you can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we are streaming for your viewing pleasure live on Rumble right now. Rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, at the top of the hour today, a bit of bad news as uh, actor Ray Liotta uh, has died at the age of 67. Of course, Ray Liotta uh, done a lot of movies, but maybe best known for uh, uh, his role as real life mobster Henry Hill uh, in the movie Goodfellas. Uh, right. When, where he played alongside Joe Pesci and uh, Robert De Niro. Uh, also other films, including uh, Karina Karina Copland. Operation Dumble Drop and what have you. And a bit of good news today. Also, actually, great news. As political prisoner, a former Black Panther and Black Liberation Army member, Sundiata Akoli was freed yesterday after 49 years of imprisonment. Uh, the Bring Sundiata Akoli Home Alliance is asking for donations to help Sundiata and his family during this time of transition, and I'll drop that link in the chat. Sundiata Akoli is free. Now we got to free them all. Uh, be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Joe Loria, the editor of Consortium News. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. I'm all choked up about being here with you. <laughs> <laughs> as you as you are, clearly. Yeah, thank totally. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, well, we're all hacking up a lung here on by any means necessary, but, uh, you know, to kick things off today, Joe, uh, you all were reported on Consortium News about um, a recorded phone call between uh, Victoria Nuland and then uh, U.S.-Ukraine ambassador uh, Jeffrey Pyatt has been removed from YouTube after eight years. And this was one of at least the most viewed uh uh, videos of this recorded call, wherein you hear Pyatt and Newland basically uh, plot out the new government uh, for Ukraine uh, following the U.S.-backed uh, Maidan coup in 2014. And you will also include a transcript where Newland is making the point that uh, the next leader should be someone she refers to as Yats uh, in reference to Arseny Yatsenyuk of the uh, uh, Fatherland Party. And then later on in that same call, uh, Newland says, you know, quote, F the EU. She curses the European Union, basically saying that the EU didn't want to go along with uh, what Washington wanted to do in Ukraine, that they were basically going to do it anyway. And, you know, the mainstream media, I believe, actually did uh, uh, talk about this when it uh, happened. Uh, but, you know, they mostly focused on the coarse language of Newland, as opposed to the fact that this is literally proof of uh, American officials uh, intervening and uh, interfering in the government of Ukraine, which stands in stark contrast to Washington's claim um, of caring about, you know, the sovereignty and democracy of Ukraine and other countries around the world. 
And, you know, uh, this call could still be found actually on Rumble and I believe some other places. But it, it definitely feels, Joe, like it's part and parcel of this broader censorship and suppression campaign um, as it pertains to the war in Ukraine, where seemingly anything that attempts to give the full political and historical context of uh, the war in Ukraine has to be just, you know, tossed into the sea of forgetfulness and just wiped from uh, the public record. I remember um, not that long ago, uh, the Oliver Stone documentary Ukraine on Fire was taken off YouTube uh, after being there for for several years with basically no problem, although uh, I believe uh, eventually it came back. And I'm just wondering how this is uh, sort of striking you in this moment, Joe, as not only uh, these sorts of things are scrubbed from the Internet, but also we continue to see um, attacks on alternative media platforms, you know, like Consortium News and others that are, you know, intent on pushing the full story of what's happening with Ukraine, Russia and the United States. Well, I was working on a story. I'm still writing it. And I had already embedded that video into the draft uh, the day before. And then when I went back to continue working on the store, I saw that it was suddenly not available. And this was a video of that conversation between uh, the American ambassador at the time, Jeffrey Piat, and the assistant secretary of state for European and Eurasian affairs, Victoria Nuland, in the beginning of February of 2014, that we had at Consortium News uh, embedded and shown many, many times. So I was a bit shocked by that, that why after eight years, suddenly it's happening now. And clearly, I thought it had something to do with the fact that there's a war going on. And there is no doubt um, the context here of an enforcement of one narrative, one official narrative permitted about Ukraine. And uh, we suffered that uh, when PayPal has blocked had blocked us and kicked us off their site forever so we can never raise funds for PayPal. I think it's a blatant attempt by them to defund us. We have other means of funding, of course, but that was an important one. It was also Mint Press News that had also been kicked off. There was no explanation. There's no explanation for why this video was taken down from YouTube. I should say there are other versions on YouTube of that video, but that one had 181,000 views. It had a very good um, subtitles, very good photographs. It was very clear audio. It was the one we kept turning to and clearly a lot of other people did. Um, it was only after I published the story, uh, and I can't find it on YouTube search, but someone on Twitter mentioned that there's a Russian uh, YouTube channel that put it up also eight years ago, and that one has over a million views. So. I corrected the story to say that, that the one that was taken down was not the most viewed one, but certainly it looks like in the most of a non-Russian or a Western uh, YouTube channel, 181,000 views. All of the thousands of comments that were, used to appear there have also been wiped out. I don't, we don't know why YouTube took it down. They don't give those kinds of reasons, nor, do, uh, nor does PayPal. Uh, so I see it as part of the same um, effort that's being made to whitewash any other, uh, any discussion really of the causes of this war. This is really what's so troubling about this. The war started in February 24. That's what the Western media says. It really began in 2014 with this American backed coup. I mean, um, there are revolutions. This is the way it's being, is, has always been portrayed by the Ukrainians who supported it by the West. 
as a revolution. But if you look in history, revolutions are against monarchies. The 1776 in the U.S., 1789 in France, 1917 in Russia, 1919 in Germany, 1952 in Egypt, 1979 in Iran. All of these were against monarchs, but but coups can be against democratically elected or or dictatorships, military coups against another military government. So th this is not a revolution, in my view. This was a coup. Uh, Yanukovych, Viktor Yanukovych, was the duly elected president in 2010. The OSCE certified that. There's no doubt about that. It was a free and fair election. But he made the fatal decision for him of taking a Russian economic package to help Ukraine. And, and he then reneged on a previous preliminary agreement to take a European Union association agreement. I feel that that was the moment when Yanukovych had to be removed from the Western point of view because in Russia, when the Soviet Union collapsed, and in Ukraine and other parts of the Soviet Union, the Wall Street and Washington moved in, they asset stripped the formerly state-owned industries, and they enriched themselves and a new class of oligarchs that arose at that time, and they impoverished the Russian people, all under the watchful eye of a very pliable Boris Yeltsin. Well. Vladimir Putin came along, and in 20, 2007, he made a speech at the Munich Security Council, which he condemned the U.S. unilateral aggression, particularly four years earlier in Iraq. And he was suddenly a problem for the United States and for the West. And they have been trying to overthrow him ever since, in my view. And now they're openly saying, as Biden said in Poland, and he said in his press conferences, that uh, the purpose of the sanctions was not to prevent the invasion of Ukraine, but to get the Russian people to rise up against him. He actually said that, and then in Poland, he completely said that he had to be overthrown. So that was set in motion at that time. But that process of someone standing up to Wall Street, basically kicking them out and restoring economic sovereignty, never happened in Ukraine. The West has always been uh, there as carpetbaggers, as the Western uh, powers and Wall Street had been in Russia, but in Ukraine, that carpet bagging continued, a gravy train. And here was Yanukovych now saying, well, I'm not going to go with the EU. I'm going to go with a Russian deal, which was, he felt, better for Ukraine than the European Association Agreement and IMF loan. The IMF loans are infamous, of course, for the onerous conditions they impose on the people of the country getting the loan. That was just too far, I think, for the United States. So. He was overthrown the very day that the Europeans had, um, and, and he at a press conference in Kiev had announced that he would step down and have a new election in December, earlier than had been scheduled. And even though he agreed to this, the he was overthrown that very night on February 21, 2014, violently. Uh, protests had already taken over government buildings in other parts of Ukraine and in Kiev as well, the capital. That night, they just completely took over the presidential administration and the uh, and the Rada, the parliament, and his party uh, was not there the next day when they, after the horse had bolted, one might say, they, they impeached him. He was gone already. So that impeachment was kind of invalid because uh, his party, the party of regions, didn't take part. He was overthrown violently. And I think that when she says, screw the FU, uh, sorry, F, F the uh, EU, uh, it, it's not clear exactly what Victor 
Newland meant then, but I think she was referring to this European deal in which Yanukovych would not only remain in power for at least December, but that he could possibly be reelected then. So the U.S. had other plans, and uh, he was violently overthrown. The United States spent billions over uh, more than two decades to create so-called democratic opposition um, through the National Endowment of Democracy. And they train protesters. This is well known that the NED does what the CIA used to do covertly. They do overtly that um, that they uh, they train people to overthrow governments the U.S. doesn't want. And he was democratically elected. So I don't see how that was a democratic revolution. Now, um, hopefully that video stays up and others aren't taken down. Uh, it was, I think, only that one so far, which had the most views uh, as a non-Russian um, website, but it was just curious, the timing. Why, after eight years, was this this very popular version of that conversation taken down? And you don't read about that in the Western press. You don't read any of the causes of this war. When you you look at historians looking at the first, uh, sorry, the Second World War, they will point to the Versailles Treaty that ended the First World War that put very onerous conditions on Germany. And historians will most agree that those conditions led to the rise of Nazism in World War II. Uh, Germany was humiliated and Nazism resulted and World War II resulted. But that doesn't mean those historians are excusing what Germany did. It's just trying to explain what the causes are. Well, we're, we're trying to do that in real time on Consortium News to explain what the causes of the Russian invasion on February 24 were. One of them certainly was the expansion of NATO eastward to former Soviet uh, bloc countries in Eastern Europe that the United States had promised and other European leaders had promised uh, Gorbachev that they would not do. Uh, there's now written proof of that, of memos. Uh, and of course, NATO expanded. Senator Joe Biden at the time in the mid-90s said that if anything will create a hostile Russian reaction is this NATO expansion eastward, he knew. Uh, even Yeltsin, as pliable as he was, and as much of a puppet as he was of the United States and the West, he opposed NATO expansion, tried to stop it, couldn't. Um, there was also, of course, the Minsk Accords that were to try to end the civil war that had erupted after this coup in 2014. There were uh, Russian-speaking provinces in the east, uh, bordering Russia, the east of Ukraine, that resisted the coup. And eight days after, about 50 anti-coup protesters were killed in a fire at the trade union building in Odessa, murdered, burnt alive, or dying from smoke inhalation. Eight days later, those two provinces, Luhansk and Donetsk, declared independence from Ukraine. Now, the Minsk Accord was put together by Germany and France mostly, and it was supposed to give autonomy to those two provinces, but stay within Ukraine. It was never implemented. That's one of the causes of the uh, Russian intervention in this ongoing civil war at the end of February. And um, there was also the fact that we don't, uh, the coup itself was certainly one of the causes. So uh, this cannot be re somehow uh, published in mainstream media. You, you don't talk about the, um, the coup. You don't talk about the Donbass civil war anymore. It's wiped out. You know, at the time uh, before the Russian invasion, if you saw American, um, European newspapers, there were a lot of maps that were published. Uh, 
that showed uh, the Russian troops on the border, hundreds of uh, 100,000 troops. But if you look at that map, they didn't show the 60,000 uh, Ukrainian forces that were aligned at the contact line with the breakaway Donbass uh, provinces. It was like a chessboard that showed only black pieces, not the white ones. So uh, that was wiped out of the of the reporting. And one other thing was Russia uh, put forward two treaty proposals in December in which they said that uh, they asked NATO and the U.S. to sign these proposals that would withdraw NATO troops from Eastern European members of NATO. Not that those countries would leave NATO, but simply those troops were withdrawn and missiles deployed in Poland and Romania would also be taken out. Well, the United States and NATO just rejected it mostly out of hand. Uh, that's not reported. And Russia at the time said they would take technical military means uh, if those treaties were not accepted. So it, it was a threat. Uh, the United States knew that. They wanted this war. That's my view. I think they set a trap for Russia. Uh, I wrote that on February 4, 20 days before the actual invasion, that they would step up an offensive uh, against the Russian speakers in Donbass, giving Russia a choice to allow them to be slaughtered or to come to their defense. And, and once Russia came to their defense and crossed the border into Ukraine, then the United States and NATO had the invasion that they were crying about and I believe needed in order to launch their economic and information and proxy war against Russia, and that's where we are right now. $40 billion more of aid, most, much of it weapons, going to Ukraine to continue that war as long as possible to weaken Russia in the words of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. <clears throat> this is where we are right now. And you can't read about the causes of the war. And I think this is why PayPal shut us down, because there's something in their terms of agreement which says that uh, somebody using PayPal cannot provide false or misleading misinformation. And I, although they won't say why, I don't think there's any other reason they could have shut us down because the only thing we trade in is information. We don't sell drug paraphernalia or weapons, which are banned, of course, on PayPal. We, we don't even sell information. We just give it away and hope people donate to help us keep going. So we're at a very critical stage right now. Fortunately, that governance, uh, the uh, disinformation governance board was stopped for the moment, maybe never come back, because that for me was what Woodrow Wilson dreamed about in 1917 when he uh, tried to insert into the Espionage Act official government censorship. It was defeated by one vote in the Senate. We have seen up until now the uh, government using proxies like social media giants to shut down speech that they don't think uh, should be allowed because it goes against the narrative they're imposing. Uh, and then this governance board came out and was going to be direct government censorship, which was clearly a violation of the First Amendment. And uh, it was a big pushback, I have to say, by Republicans mostly. And um, they stopped it. And if that were challenged in court, I don't see how that could have survived unless the court, Supreme Court is totally corrupted. And, I, and since it's a Republican majority court, I suspect that they would not have allowed it. But this is this is the scary moment we're at right now with the United States pushing this war to continue against Ukraine. Uh, we've even now had Henry Kissinger in the New York Times saying, let's have Ukraine make a deal, even if it means giving up territory to stop this war because it can get out of hand and lead to a nuclear confrontation. Uh, you can't get any more dramatic than everything I've just been talking about.
Definitely. Well, we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Joe Loria. And we have a caller on the line here Tell us what's on your mind. Hey, what's going on, Sean and Jackie? Uh, love listening to the show. Love everything you're doing here. And just want to say hello to your guests as well. Um, but I wanted to know if you could speak to the usefulness of Pan-Africanism in this moment. Uh, I'm thinking about the recent white supremacist terror attack in my hometown in Buffalo, New York. I'm thinking about the rising U.S. military presence in the Horn of Africa, as well as the U.S.'s like growing dependency on, on African oil as, as a source of energy, and how these things all um, are helping us to sort of see, which I think is happening in the moment, which is the U.S. Um, going full, you know, full throttle on full spectrum dominance across the globe. Especially thinking about Joe Biden's recent trip to Asia, and just I'm just thinking about how Pan Africanism might allow us to create a map for ourselves to understand uh, these, these shifting borders and these, these growing uh, conflicts as white supremacy is, is growing across the globe. Well, well, thanks a lot, Taji. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Really appreciate your support of the show. That is a very interesting question. Uh, when you talk about what does Pan-Africanism have to say to Buffalo, what it makes me think of is the fact that obviously this was a white supremacist terror attack, right? And uh, against black people specifically, the, the shooter very purposefully uh, uh, went to an area that he know was densely uh, populated by black folks. And I think about the fact that, you know, there are there are white supremacists, uh, you know, violent white supremacists operating inside the African continent. I don't know if people uh, are aware of that, but it's uh, uh, absolutely true. And we know that, of course, um, the, the symbology and whatnot that uh, the shooter had on him was the same as we see in Ukraine and on other um, uh, white supremacists and neo-Nazi groups, both in the U.S. and around the world. And on the one hand, I think we should be clear that, you know, there's a network uh, uh, for all these uh, types of folks, although the Buffalo shooter, uh, you know, by his own uh, word anyway, was not formally a part of any group, but merely a supporter of many white supremacist groups. And so when we look at how, for instance, the militarization of the African continent under uh, uh, AFRICOM and how that, along with, you know, uh, war and imperialism in general and how that exacerbates, say, uh, racist police terror here in the U.S. and how, you know, people like this, this kid in Buffalo even had access to um, a, a, a weapon like that. You know, to me, it's, it's just a microcosm of the same racist violence that not only is at the root of the United States, but has been, you know, uh, bedeviling and underdeveloping the African continent and uh, African people wherever we find ourselves on this earth for centuries. It all boils down to that same 
uh, white supremacist capitalist colonial system that made us into slaves and colonial subjects and, you know, developed this uh, a comprador neo-colonial class of people to, you know, uh, uh, exploit African people. Um, you know, in the skin and language and, and all of that, that that they can understand. And so, you know, I feel like uh, Pan-Africanism has a quite a bit to say to, to, to this kind of struggle. And I think should sort of, you know, uh, uh, reify our commitment, if you will, to a Pan-Africanist struggle in a united socialist Africa. Uh, Jackie Lukman, your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I, I think when we look at the connections uh, that the white supremacist uh, murderer uh, in Buffalo made in his manifesto, the the uh, respect that he paid to the white supremacist murderers in Queens Church uh, in New Zealand, and uh, the the affinity he had for Dylan Roof, who had an affinity with uh, uh, apartheid Rhodesia in in South Africa. We we understand, <clears throat> excuse me, that. The ideology, you know, the connections with the white supremacists in Ukraine, the neo-Nazis in Ukraine, we understand, we should understand that the ideology is international. It is not, we are not talking about a particular group of racist white people who are quote unquote American and a particular group of racist white, you know, white people or Europeans who are quote unquote Ukrainian or no, 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 they, they are, it's just like capitalism. It, it, it is an international uh, movement, and so is the ideology of white supremacy. But on the continent, we're talking about the way it manifests itself, itself yes, in white supremacist violence, but particularly in neocolonialism, in the uh, re-subjugation of indigenous peoples. Uh, they may use multinational corporations to to do that, but it definitely is the same ideology of uh, colonialism and oppression of the other. So, you know, and I, and I think uh, I'm actually looking at hoodcommunist.org and their uh, statement about African Liberation Day 2022. And it's called Smash Neocolonialism. And in this piece, they talk about these issues, the connections between the struggles that working class, poor and oppressed folks in the settler colony of the United States are undergoing with the white supremacist violence that we are facing here to the neocolonial struggles or the struggles against neocolonialism that are going on on the continent. Because we have to understand, as I said, Sean, that these are connected issues. These, the, the white supremacists in the U.S. are linked up with the white supremacists in Ukraine, are linked up with the rights, white supremacists on the continent and everywhere else in the world where they want to subjugate the other again. So our response to them must be as international and as coordinated. Definitely. And uh, uh, switching gears back to uh, our conversation here, Joe, because we were discussing um, basically uh, propaganda, censorship and suppression around uh, uh, the war in Ukraine. 
And we've even seen now uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken uh, basically uh, saying that the U.S. wants to lead the the same block uh, of countries um, that have sort of coalesced uh, against Russia following its invasion of Ukraine, basically into an uh, anti-China coalition. Um, He said uh, during an address, quote, Even as President Putin's war continues, we will remain focused on the most serious long term challenge to the international order. And that is the one posed by the People's Republic of China. China is the only country with both the intent to reshape the international order and increasingly the economic, diplomatic, military and technological power to do it. Beijing's vision would move us away from the universal values that have sustained so much of the world's progress over the past 75 years. Now, Joe, I'm of the opinion that the this that this was actually a part of Washington's plans all along, because it seemed that all throughout both the lead up and even somewhat following uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Washington made it a point to uh, try to sort of drag China into the narrative. And now that we've reached a particular point in the Ukraine war where the, the U.S. and West's narrative of what's happening there has been firmly planted in the consciousness of people in uh, uh, this country. Now they're sort of being more uh, explicit and upfront about how uh, uh, their proxy war with Russia using Ukraine is connected to the ongoing new Cold War with China as well. And so I'm just wondering how that is hitting you as, you know, at least from my perspective, you know, the machinations of imperialism uh, seem to nations of imperialism uh, seem to be uh, uh, yeah, uh, revealed here. I just want to have one word uh, about Pan-Africanism. I'm here in London where a friend of mine, Susan Williams' latest book came out a few months ago called White Malice, the CIA and the mm. Covert Recolonization yeah. of Africa. I know the book. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's a fascinating book because from the very beginning of the Ghana independence movement, she shows how uh, the CIA was infiltrating anti-colonial groups in the U.S., et cetera. They were right there trying to nip this in the bud, pan-Africanism. So I just wanted to plug my friend Susan Williams' book, White Malice. As far as China goes, go to the Wolfowitz Doctrine, uh, the Project for New American Century, numerous documents that came out around the turn of this century uh, in which they basically, uh, the neoconservative view is no power can rise up to challenge the United States' global supremacy. This is what we're seeing played out right now. Now, the neocons used to reside in the Republican Party, and they deserved all the wrath that they got, but they have migrated to the Democratic Party, mostly in 2016 because of Trump. So, uh, and Hillary Clinton being a liberal interventionist and Samantha Power, uh, they were. It's, a, it's an easy uh, wedding to have between these two. So we have to look at what the neocon project is, and now, unfortunately, it's in the Democratic Party that's in power and that is what they said, uh, to make sure that Russia and China, the only two countries that really could challenge the United States globally, will be somehow uh, weakened. Uh, they ultimately would love to see their regimes changed to some stooges like Yeltsin was, who will do Washington's bidding. This is about global dominance. I mean, we're not talking about a James Bond film here, although it sounds like one. Some crazy person, uh, scientist in a lab trying to take over the world. This is the Pentagon and the White House and the State Department. These are the neocons. And they're scary as all hell. 
And they're trying to drag China into this from the very start of this conflict. They And I wrote some articles about this on Consortium News. They were threatening sanctions against China, the kind of sanctions they immediately put that they had already to slap on Russia as soon as they crossed that line into Ukraine, which they did, including on the central bank. And incidentally, they're failing those sanctions. You've probably been reporting this, that the rubles at something like 58 to a dollar, and it went up to 150 immediately after the sanctions. The Russians are taking measures to slow down the strength of the ruble. It's getting too strong. It could hurt their exports to the countries they're allowed to export to, which happens to be the most of the world. Most of the world has not joined in the U.S. sanctions, but most people in the United States and Europe think that the world is the United States and Europe. They don't consider India... Africa, Latin America, China, and Russia to be part of their world. It's the world that's in their way. But it's the majority of the world's population that is not joining in these sanctions. So the United States is freaking out. Now, they may or may not have been involved in the pushing out of Imran Khan in Pakistan because he decided also not to get with the sanctions program. They're putting enormous pressure on India. <clears throat> And they would love to do something about China. And they're looking at this now and they're stirring up more tensions with Taiwan. Um, and in the same way that they were willing uh, and hoping for an invasion by Russia of Ukraine and paved the way for it, as I said in the first segment, by not taking that treaty proposals, by not implementing the Minsk agreement and uh, by not dealing with the Russian security interests in Europe that France's President Macron was the only one who seemed to take it seriously. They invited the invasion of Iraq. I think it was a trap, and I, I, I hope uh, that this, I think this was a mistake by Russia. I'll say this clearly. Uh, they may win this war. I think they are winning the war. I think that the American press now uh, and the British press are trying to realize that. Kissinger is realizing that. Um, Zelensky is saying, no way, they're going to give up any territory. So this, it's Johnson, Boris Johnson, who flew to Ukraine, to Kiev, to speak with Zelensky and say, don't negotiate with Russia. The Americans are telling him that when they could have gotten a much better deal from Russia very early on in, in Istanbul, there was an offer made to them uh, weeks after the war began. Uh, so the United States wants this war to continue in Ukraine, and they're stirring up things in in Taiwan and with China, and and this is in, cannot be more dangerous. Well, really, the U.S. is pushing something that they was they were always pushing, but in a much more restrained way. Now it's out in the open. Now we're looking at real military conflict, which has already started with Russia and NATO's proxy Ukraine. But we desperately want to avoid Russia or Chinese direct engagement with nuclear-powered Western states and. There seem to be people in the United States administration on the op-ed pages who are thinking they can win a nuclear war. Um, this is complete, total, utter insanity. There's no anti-nuclear movement. There's no peace movement. There is only danger ahead. And the Australian government, I want to say a word about them. And if we get to talk about Assange, I want to also uh, loop them. And I've just left Australia after two years there, and I'm in London now. And this Australian Labour Party that was just uh, elected uh, said that they would support Assange. But more importantly for Australian interests would be to not take the hardline U.S. position on China because China is the largest trading partner of Australia. They're completely intertwined, these economies, Australia and China. And Australia has been hurting their own interests, much the way Germany hurt their interests by putting sanctions on Russia 
after 2014 events. Uh, German businessmen didn't want that. But here we go. So the pressure is on China. They never went ahead with those sanctions because they realized that the United States would suffer probably more than China would. They have made China and Russia create a new economic system. That's what they're in the process of doing. A new monetary system, new trading block, a new a new uh, transfer of, of bank exchanges to replace SWIFT. India is in this. The majority of the world is unifying against the United States. They, but the deluded leaders of the United States cannot see that the corner they're painting themselves into in the world. They still have ideas of China of 30, 40 years ago as a weak power that can be pushed around, or of Russia the way it was under Yeltsin. They have to understand that they're dealing with powers that they may not like, but they have to deal with. This is basically what Henry Kissinger was saying. The, the war criminal that he is, he is, a, he is of course, a, a great practitioner of realpolitik. And that is you make deals even with the enemy to preserve a balance of power. The United States is not interested in the neocons that are driving U.S. policy, which Kissinger is not one of, are driving a, uh, against the idea of a balance of power. They want ultimate total power over the whole world, and they have to install the re regimes in Russia and China in particular that would allow the United States to have that global dominance. It's a sick dream that the American people need to be aware of and push back against and uh, to see the New York Times finally say, look, let's have Ukraine do a deal is, is, a, is a crack in this uh, solid monolithic view in the, that the United States has been pushing on Ukraine and against Russia that they are extending to China now. These people cannot be allowed to, to win. It's not about right or wrong at this point. It's about living or dying. Uh, it's about avoiding a world war nuclear armed world war, which the first world war did when it broke out, there were no nuclear weapons. So it's a completely different world right now. And you, you can't be pushing around your uh, idea of, of domination, your idea of your system, your rules-based order, as opposed to the international uh, laws of the United Nations Charter. Uh, you know, Listen, it, the UN international law is worthless right now. The United States has made it worthless. They have degraded it with its invasions of Iraq, etc., and all of its invasions over the years and all the coups they've covered out. All the regime change has been uh, to make a jungle out of the world. And this is a jungle the United States thinks they can dominate, and they're deluded in thinking that. They're going to wind up killing us all because those countries of Russia and China are getting stronger together, and they're not going to allow the United States to get away with this. And they're not going to just lie down and say, well, let the U.S. dominate because we don't want to fight this nuclear war. Uh, so, so this is the two questions. What do we want? We want a world of total U.S. dominance, which would never work. Look at all the failures that the neocons have had in Iraq, in Afghanistan. They cannot win. Even in even the localized wars, let alone a major international conflict, they but they continuously stay in in power or in influence behind the scenes. They continually get the defense budgets that they get their presidents to ask for and Congress to vote for. Uh, 
the United States, I haven't been in the U.S. in almost uh, two and a half years now, but from afar, it looks like an insanity has gripped the nation. But I don't think the average American in the street gives a damn about Russia or China and wants to feed themselves and their families. And that's who is being hurt when you send $40 billion to Ukraine and you don't have anything approximating a national health insurance. You have anything, any kind of relief in terms of the inflation, which is being caused by, largely by, or exacerbated by the American sanctions. This is a run of uh, 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 a government out of control, and the media has got has been on board. We maybe we're starting to see, as I say, that Times op-ed some pushback now because somebody's got to rein these ins- insane people in before they kill us all. Definitely, and I mean your analysis of the situation here in the U.S. is uh, pretty spot on there, Joe. To be to be honest with you, and although you know the propaganda around uh, Russia and China, I think has been you know largely successful amongst the American people. If the political class thinks that the rank and file American cares more about that than their own deteriorating conditions, then I think they may be mistaken. But we're gonna move to another quick break. On that note, here on by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Joe Loria is here. And Joe, a moment ago, uh, uh, you mentioned... Julian Assange and uh, the new Australian prime minister, Anthony Albanese. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. Albanese. Yeah. Albanese, uh, one who had a very uh, friendly meeting with U.S. President Joe Biden here uh, recently. Um, yeah, I believe this was happening amid the, the, the recent you know, quad summit in Tokyo with Australia, India, Japan and the U.S. It uh, sort of seems like Biden was going out of his way to, excuse me, really be friendly to Albanese to drive home to the reporters and the public about the relationship between Washington and Australia. And uh, I was hoping you could say more about what uh, the about uh, Albanese rising as the new PM there in Australia could mean uh, uh, for Julian Assange. I believe there's, you know, been some uh, uh, pressure that's been applied to, you know, uh, Priti Patel, who's the British Home Secretary, uh, around her decision over whether or not to uh, extradite Julian Assange. And, you know, I think her background makes the prospects of that uh, worrisome as well. And so, but I mean, starting with the Albanese, I mean, uh, what do you see as the prospects there for Assange, uh, I mean, given the fact that it doesn't seem like Assange came up in his talks with Biden. I think he blew a golden opportunity. Uh, Yes, Priti Patel is going to decide in the next five days whether to sign the extradition order. That's not the end of the legal road for Assange. They can then appeal to the high court that very decision, as well as the points of law that uh, the lower court agreed with the United States on, which is all about whether this is a political prosecution, about the attempts by the CIA to kidnap or or poison Assange by the First Amendment issues. Those are all issues that the uh, Assange team will raise 
hopefully with the high court, if they take some of the nine points of appeal that they're going to put forward to. But this is a crucial moment right now. Pretty Patel has to uh, decide whether to sign that extradition order or not. And there is pressure coming uh, against her and probably from the U.S. I don't, know, I don't know if she needs it. I think she knows what's expected of her. So here's Albanese getting elected on sat last Saturday. And it just so happened on Monday he, uh, he was going to meet Biden. Two days later, he was sworn in on Sunday. And he was on the phone with Biden even before he was sworn in and with Boris Johnson, giving away the store, giving them everything they wanted on China, uh, which is the quads ramping up a pressure on China. And uh, this is um, a, a moment when Albanese could have, you know, played up some kind of uh, used his leverage. The other thing was Biden just announced this 13-nation new economic pact in Asia to try to cut China out. And there was Albanese signing up to that. He hadn't even been sworn in yet. He was telling Biden, I'm going to sign up to that. So everything that Biden and Boris Johnson wanted, he gave to them without at least saying, well, let's talk about it. You know, when we get to China, sorry, when we get to Japan for this squad meeting. And uh, by the way, there's this fellow who's an Australian citizen. His name is Julian Assange. And uh, you, Boris Johnson, have him in a dungeon in London. And you, Joe Biden, want to extradite him and throw away the key in a maximum security prison in the United States for the rest of his life. We really think he should come back. It's not only that he's an Australian citizen and his own life is on the line right now because he's suffered a stroke, he's deteriorating, but this is a matter for extreme importance in terms of whether we really are democracies or not. We can't pretend anymore if we're going to start throwing journalists and publishers who publish accurate information that embarrass you by exposing your crimes by throwing them in jail the way any Tim Pot dictator would do. We can't look like that, can we, Joe? We got to uh, stand up and let this guy go. And it's best for your legacy, too. I understand he could tell him that the Democratic Party is pressuring you and the intelligence services in the U.S. are pressuring you because back in 2010, Joe Biden said on Meet the Press when he was vice president, we can't indict Assange if we can't prove he actually stole the documents. If he just received class material from his source, which was Chelsea Manning, then we can't do anything about it. And guess what? The Obama, Defense, the, Department, the Obama Department of Justice did nothing about it. They did not indict him. On the same evidence, the Trump administration did. What happened that has made Joe Biden change his mind from 2010 to now? Two things happened. One, the 2016 election, which was falsely blamed on Assange giving us Trump. Even Mueller uh, absolved Assange of that. And he also said there was no collusion. So this was nonsense. This was true information from the Democratic Party that was leaked to WikiLeaks that published it, that brought down the head of the DNC. So obviously it was true. And the other thing that happened was the Vault 7 release of the CIA hacking tools that someone at the CIA gave to WikiLeaks. And he published him, Assange did, and that pissed off the um, CIA so much that they actually, under Pompeo, discussed poisoning him or kidnapping him. And this came out in a testimony in the lower court in his extradition hearing from a trial going on in Spain of a company that had the CIA had contracted to spy 24-7 in real time on Assange inside the Ecuadorian embassy here in London. And... It also came out in the Yahoo News story, which which confirmed all that and, and gave many more details. So the obviously, the CIA wants Assange. I think MI6 and MI5 want Assange. And certainly, Democrat Party will never let Biden get away with letting him off because they think they're blaming him 
shifting the blame from Hillary, who ran a lousy campaign, to uh, Julian Assange for giving us Trump, which is an absurdity. Plus, there's the woman angle, because some, some people still think he was a rapist and that it was he was never charged with rape. There was never any evidence of that at all. Uh, Niels Meltzer, the UN Rapporteur on Torture's excellent new book on that, explains in great detail, debunks all of those disinformation about Assange. So here was Albanese with this golden opportunity where he had something the Americans and the British wanted, and he just gave it to them. And we don't know whether he raised Assange, could have been private, but there's been no movement on this. Um, and he immediately, even before he met with him, agreed to all of these things on the telephone when Biden was flying to Tokyo. So I'm very disappointed in Albanese. By the way, he did uh, make statements earlier, like a year or two ago, that this enough is enough. As those are his words, Assange should come back to Australia. He didn't commit any crimes. We need openness. We cannot be putting journalists in jail, blah, blah, blah. But during the campaign, and I was in Australia during the campaign, he didn't utter Assange's word once. And even though 70 or more percent of Australian citizens in polls want Assange to come back. So it's a winning issue for a politician. There's always the consequences that the Americans would uh, move against him. We have to look at the mid-1970s when Gulf Whitlam, an Australian prime minister, was literally overthrown by the CIA and Buckingham Palace. This has all come out now because the documents were released a year or two ago. Why? Because Whitlam did a whole bunch of things the Americans and the CIA hated. He pulled Australian troops out of Vietnam. He threatened to close down Pine Gap, which is a major NSA-run uh, uh, spying uh, facility in the middle of Australia near Alice Springs. It spies on China. It helps to guide drone op uh, drone strikes uh, in the Middle East. It He moved against that. He said other things the Americans didn't like. He started national health insurance in Australia, free education. He was a social democrat in not in name only, and the Americans overthrew this guy. So every prime minister since knows if you stand up to the U.S. on a big issue, like telling Biden, you know what, I'm not going to go along necessarily with, with this aggression against China. First of all, they're our big trading partner. I'm not necessarily going to join this new economic union. I want to talk to you about Julian Assange. Uh, didn't dare do it, uh, as far as we know, and it's very disappointing. Yeah, disappointing to say the least, especially for countries in the region. Um, and um, this brings to mind uh, the Solomon Islands, where, I mean, who right. was paying attention to the Solomon Islands until they decided to enter a deal with China? And Australia is all of a sudden, oh, the Solomon Islands is now in our backyard and we can't allow this. So, I mean, what does the election of this person with the clear backing and and blessing of the U.S. portend for nations like the Solomon Islands, who are clearly not interested in being in uh, uh, economic or even diplomatic relations with the U.S. or its allies and are just fine entering uh, uh, into relations with China. Well, look, Ukraine can, can join any military alliance at once, but Solomon Islands cannot. What a perfect example of hypocrisy. Albanese is going to do be no different on foreign affairs than the right wing um, Morrison. Uh, 
uh, government, which I'm glad to see the back of Morris, Scott Morrison. But uh, it's going to be more on domestic issues. And he'll be a little bit better probably on things like education and uh, the health insurance issues and those kinds of things, which are very important to Australians, but will have no impact on the world. So whatever the United States says, he's going to most likely do, <coughs> judging by what we've seen so far and what we know about previous Labour governments uh, since Gough Whitlam, like I said, in the 1970s. So he's not going to do anything to help Assange, in my opinion. In fact, I asked Kristen Raffinson, the current editor-in-chief of WikiLeaks, at a protest outside the home uh, office when I arrived here in London on the 18th of, of May, um, or later than that, I can't remember the exact date, but anyway, I asked him about, about Benazi, and he said that he'd rather take his chances at the card table betting on the car table than on Albanese. So so the WikiLeaks team didn't have a lot of expectations for Albanese to do anything. But of course, he did say those things, that it was enough, was enough. It brings up the uh, Jeremy Corbyn, who had also said things about uh, about Assange, but then didn't raise him during the, his campaign. And then, of course, he lost. There was a lot of hope that if he'd won, he would get him out. And of course, he has a more direct bearing on it, since it's the British government that's holding him right now and has to decide whether... But of course, he never won. And Johnson and Pretty Patel are going to, there's no way that they're going to not sign this extradition order. So the Solomon Islands could be a flashpoint. But what it's ever what the Americans say, it's what they say, that's what Albanese will do. It's really, it's really disheartening that the Europe has become more servile to the United States than ever, and Australia is just as servile as it ever was. This is kind of a high point of American power in their own eyes. They're, they're weakening Russia. They're fighting a war against Russia with Ukrainian lives. And now they really think they're in the driver's seat, but things are crumbling around the edges in terms of economically. And the fact is that they're not going to win on the ground, it looks like, uh, especially in Donbass. And there are now voices like Kissinger in the New York Times saying, well, let's make a deal and end this damn crisis. But that's not what the neocons want. Not at all. <clears throat> not at all. And I mean, it seems to me that this ongoing attack on Julian Assange, which is years running, you know what I mean? That that came after years of him, uh, you know, living inside the Ecuadorian embassy in the in Britain um, before, uh, you know, the 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 new government in uh, Ecuador, I believe Leonard Moreno. Uh, I mean, basically uh, betrayed uh, Assange and allowed him to be pulled from the embassy. And I think we have to see the case of Julian Assange as being directly connected to this issue of censorship and suppression that we were talking to earlier. It's just a hundred percent clear that if you uh, discuss the reality of the crimes, the straight up crimes against humanity that the U S and other governments are responsible for. And that's not an exaggeration. When you look at um, what uh, WikiLeaks has exposed, things like the collateral damage video and all these sorts of things. I mean, you know, uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, basically uh, uh, trying to excuse itself for killing uh, uh, innocent people in this endless war drive. It, it's clear that you have to attack a Julian Assange, a platform like WikiLeaks and alternative media in general, because they tell the truth about those who are in power under this uh, capitalist imperialist system. And that makes it more difficult for them to continue to uh, maintain uh, that leadership and perhaps more importantly, uh, maintain their stranglehold over the consciousness 
of the rank and file person, both in the U.S. and, uh, uh, you know, in these other places, you know, the the junior partners, as I call it, uh, Uncle Sam and his little friends. That's what the so-called international community is that the U.S. is talking about. It's not talking about the real international community, but actually just talking about the uh, countries that are sufficiently servile to it. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. want to thank Joe Loria so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow and all new episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.